0: friends, welcome. Welcome on this snowy day. Welcome to those of you who braved the snowy day. If you're you're a guest amongst us, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. We're working through the Gospel of John together, and so we come now to John chapter 4, and we're looking at the next part of what I've broken into three sections in John chapter 4. There's three bits that happen. Last week we talked about how the Gospel has no borders. We looked at the encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well. And this week, we're going to be looking at the results of that experience. And because I just like handing out good books. If you have not read one or the other of these, and I know some of you have read Evangelism as Exiles, but man, this book is just rocking my world. I love this book. It's a wonderful, helpful text on uh, from the perspective of a missionary who worked for a long time outside the country and then came back to the United States about how Christians can view evangelism in America. And then J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God is an awesome text on evangelism. It's just great. If you have not read and you would like to read one of these, these are for borrowing. Come find me, and I'll happily give them to you. That being said, let's look at the text today. So the big idea today for this sermon from this passage is that everyone needs the gospel. The big idea for today is that everyone needs the gospel. Last week was the gospel has no borders. This week, everyone needs the gospel. If we're summarizing this section, we would summarize it like this. Jesus travels north through Samaria, and he has two conversations, each with two levels of meaning, one with a woman calling her to quench her spiritual thirst, and now this one with the disciples, teaching them to respond to a gospel-fueled spiritual hunger. And the central work of the passage, as we said last week, is to awaken us to certain unfelt but very real spiritual needs. Things that are real in our heart that we really need to pay attention to, but which we may not be aware of. In the case of the woman, she wasn't aware that she needed that cleansing that comes from the grace of the gospel. And in this passage, we see the disciples are not aware of a hunger to do what the gospel commands. So Jesus calls his disciples and also us to learn to be hungry to obey the promptings Of God's grace. He exposes their gospel short-sightedness in this passage. He calls them to look at the world around them, not so much in terms of its hardness to the gospel, but in terms of God's power to save sinners. So in verse 31, while the townsfolk are still coming in response to the woman's testimony, the disciples are concerned about something. So let's put our nose back in the text and let's look at this passage. So we started at verse, um, we started at verse eh, 29. Let's start there. The, the woman left her water, in 28, the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So, got a series of points today. Our first point is grace changes our priorities. Grace changes our priorities. Look at Jesus' response to the disciples in verse 32. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. He goes on in 34, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So what's he doing here? The disciples are concerned about an actual physical hunger. Like, dude, you have not eaten, you need some bread. And Jesus is more concerned about a different kind of hunger, right? He's trying to alert them to something that is just as important as physical hunger and possibly more so in some cases. He wants to confront their preoccupation with physical hunger without denying its importance. They don't ever get the impression that Jesus is like, you don't need to eat. As long as you do what God asks you to do, you don't need to eat. You know, it's, he's not arguing for that. He's trying to get them to wake up to a hunger that they don't know they have. A deeper kind of hunger, a more enduring kind of nourishment, in fact. Faithful obedience. So Jesus urges his disciples to give priority to their spiritual diet. He tells them they need to cultivate a hunger to obey God's commands and to do his will. So I'm going to break this big point, Grace Changes Our Priorities, into some sub-points, the first of which is we must learn to discern spiritual hunger from other kinds of needs. And this is directed basically only at this point at at Christians. Friend, if you're a non-Christian today, I think you can benefit from what we're saying to each other. But at this point... We believe that you won't be able to differentiate your spiritual need from your physical need until you come to know Jesus Christ. But as a Christian, we also know this is a process. Tasting of the grace of Jesus Christ awakens you to a whole new world. Your heart starts to begin to want stuff that it never wanted before, and you want to start to do things that you thought were dumb before, because Jesus changes you. And we have to start to learn to distinguish between these kinds of feelings. My kids right now, um, they're, 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 they've gotten past the point where they really don't know what it means to be hungry or why they're so upset. But like when David was really small, he, he would just get really upset. Now I knew it was because he was hungry, but he did not know this, and so he would not want to eat food. He was just like, no, no, I'm just let me be upset, you know. And we had to teach him, as it were, you're hungry. When you solve this with food, it world gets better. Okay. To a certain extent, we as Christians. We have to learn what it feels like to be spiritually hungry. And then we have to learn that we need to feed that spiritual hunger with godly obedience. We are a spiritual being. A spiritual being is a being that is united of various parts. It means we have mind, a will, emotions, a body, and all of these things live together. And they affect each other. Your mind affects your emotions, affects your will and your body, and your body affects these things as well. You can't really pull out any bit and just treat it on its own. And our spiritual health affects our physical health and vice versa. There is a time and a place to learn to fast from literal food so that you can learn to be hungry for Jesus. There is a time to learn to fast from real food so that you can learn to be hungry for Jesus. Jesus does not say to his disciples, if you choose to fast, he says, when you fast. He assumes that a normal, regular practice of a Christian is to fast from real, literal food so that you can learn to be hungry for Jesus. There's also a time, though, where we have to ensure that we are receiving proper physical nourishment and rest so as to be able to do what jesus commands we aren't supposed to practice spiritual disciplines simply for the point of piety or simply for the point of making ourselves trying to make ourselves more holy and wearing ourselves down so that we can't actually do what jesus asks us to do and so we have to learn to distinguish between these two hungers do you see There's a real hunger in our body that we need to feed and there's a real hunger in our soul that we need to feed. We need to learn what the cues are for both of those things and how to attend to them as God gives us grace to. So the first thing is we need to learn to discern spiritual hunger from other kinds of needs. And sometimes for some of us, you know your cues for hungry, you're hangry, right? Right? You you know, whether you get a headache or you get dizzy or you get frustrated with people real easy, you know, you know what the cues are. They're like, I probably need to eat eat some actual food so that I can stop being a jerk to everyone. Um, There are also spiritual cues. And so sometimes in our lives, we're wondering, like, why am I in this period of spiritual malaise where I'm in this period where spiritually I feel like God is not doing anything in my life or as though he's not there or as though he doesn't care or my prayer life isn't, isn't thriving or my relationship to my wife is just collapsing in on itself, sometimes the reason for that, for those mal effects that you're experiencing is because you are actually spiritually hungry and you have not been feeding yourself with real spiritual nourishment. And sometimes, even though I'm using this metaphor of ingestion, we're going to get to the part where Spiritual nourishment is actually exertion, where you go and you exercise obedience. Sometimes that's the way to resolve that. So the second thing I want to say under this is that we must be willing to give the right priority to our spiritual needs. We have to be willing to give the right priority to our spiritual needs. You have to learn what they are, you have to learn their cues, and then you have to choose to give priority to it. We need to recognize that without a drink from the fountain of God's grace, we will metaphorically grow faint. We will become spiritually lightheaded. We will lose strength. Some of us treat our faith like a fake plant. Like fake plants are awesome in that you can stick them on a shelf and not touch them for four years and they look exactly the same as they did four years ago. You see what the problem is? There's no fruit from a real plant, uh, from a fake plant. We sometimes think of our faith that way. We feel like, well, I can just stick it on the shelf and not touch it, not water it, not give it sunshine, not care for it. And then we expect for it to be ready to face temptation when temptation comes. But it's not, because it's not, in this case, real. And if it's a real plant, it's wilted and weak. We need to nourish it. So there are times... Friends, when we need to choose to go without material comfort to do what God commands, the disciples are showing up and they're saying, Jesus, you should be really hungry at this point. And Jesus says, You know, right now, you know what really matters right now? What really mattered right now is that this woman heard the gospel. And you know what? I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied at a deeper level than bread could ever make me right now because this woman heard the gospel. He identified his spiritual hunger, and he nourished it with spiritual obedience. So the third element I want to break out here is that we need to nourish ourselves. We must be willing to give right priority to our spiritual need, but we have to be willing to nourish ourselves in two ways. Consumption and in godly obedience, or exertion. We need to feed on or consume the grace of God by reading his word, by praying, by spending time with godly friends, by gathering in the assembly of the saints, by submitting to preaching and teaching, by singing hymns and, and spiritual songs in our hearts with thankfulness to God, but now you can see I'm already bleeding over into exertion. We also need to exercise our obedience. It's dangerous to let mere doctrine just sit in your mind. Think of how Paul warns the churches, he says that there are some who are always learning, he says, but they never come to a knowledge of the truth, having the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Whereas if you just like constantly receiving the word of God and constantly listening, but there's never an expression of godly obedience in your life. If if love is not coming out from you towards your family, if you are not discipling others in the ways of Christ, then I don't know what you mean by saying that you're a disciple of Christ. I'm not saying you're not. I'm saying ordinarily disciples of Christ disciple others. Disciples of Christ love others. They express the grace that is in them. So I was a personal trainer when I, among other things, if you ever want all the stories, I did many jobs. One of the jobs that I did when I was in seminary was I was a personal trainer in Bannockburn. I was in, um, would do weight training and things like that. And inevitably, in personal training, there are two aspects of what you're doing. Consumption and exertion. What you put in and what you put out. And a lot of people would like to just do one or the other. <laughs> they, they would like to control the one and forget the other or, or focus hard on the other so that they can be completely liberated in the one. I had guys who were like, dude, I come here to work out so that I can eat whatever I want. And you're like, well, that's, you, you have the appearance of godliness, <laughs> but you're denying its power. There's some stuff going on inside that's not so great, right? And then other folks who were like, I don't really need to do anything. I just, you know, I just watch my diet. Life is good, you know. There's, there's issues on both sides. And you want to harmonize both of these. We need to be careful on what we're putting in and we need to be careful about what we're putting out. We need to exercise our obedience. We need to find deliberate ways of putting into practice what we know. We need to be teaching others, loving others, working at the disciplines of holiness and grace. And so if your heart is convicted by God in his word as the disciples should have been when they came back to Jesus and were like, dude, you need bread. And he's like, dudes, you need to obey God, (laughs) then take a moment. Think and pray through a deliberate plan for new spiritual obedience. So consider your spiritual diet and consider your spiritual exercise regimen. So that's what I mean by grace changes our priorities. When you become a Christian, you're not chiefly concerned anymore with only what you eat or do. The Apostle Paul says bodily training is of some value, but what is of value in every way? Godliness. Godliness is of value in every way. So, friend, when you become a Christian, we aren't just concerned about what we're literally eating or literally doing. We become, considerate, we become very considerate of what we are consuming in terms of the grace of Christ and what we're doing. But Jesus says it's, he says it's more important to do what God sent him to do, to meet with this Samaritan woman, than to eat in this case. And he calls us to have a like-minded obedience. So the next major point then, so if grace changes our priorities, then grace changes our perspective. And you could also insert here, if you wanted, mindset. Grace changes our perspective, our mindset, if you were here a few weeks ago. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. This is a really easy one to just roll right by and not notice. But this event, when this happened in the real calendar, is early in the growing season. Jesus says, look around you, literally, And you will notice, do you not say there are yet four months to the harvest? So it's way at the beginning end of the growing season. But then he says, now look again. Look at a deeper level. Jesus says, see things differently. See the landscape informed by God's gospel grace. Rather than the green fields of temporal spring or the time of worldly spring. Instead, you see the white tips of the wheat as it were, ready for a spiritual harvest. So Jesus here is likening our spiritual life to plant growth and evangelistic obedience to harvesting. So he says, people are like plants. They grow up, and then there comes a point where they're ready to receive the gospel. He says, you all are looking around, and you're not seeing the potential He enjoins the disciples to practice using their spiritual understanding to perceive and prioritize their circumstances. He says, they're walking up to him being like, dude, you must be hungry, you've had no bread. And he's sitting there going like, dude, have you noticed how many people need the gospel? Have you noticed how hungry everyone is for grace? He's changed his priorities, and he's calling them to change their perspective. When we look at the world around us with our eyes informed by the gospel, we see, or we should see, an opportunity for others to grow in faith and come to Jesus. And just check yourself, because... I think most of us, at least a lot of folks that I've been talking to of late, when you look at the news and the television and you meet your neighbors and you're talking to the people out in the work world, I'm not sure that that's our first conviction. I wonder if we've begun to embrace the idea that because the world looks so hard to the gospel, it must be impenetrable to the gospel. And instead of seeing the people around us as hard to see them as empty. It's instead of seeing them as full of themselves to see them hungry for Christ. It's sure they put on a good show. But deep down, are they missing that most essential thing? And how do we see them? You see... Jesus knows that food was not why he had to go through Samaria. Remember back where we asked that question, like, did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Could he have gone another way? Yeah, he could have gone another way. But he needed to go through Samaria. Why did he need to go through Samaria? Because God had set an appointment for him there to do gospel work there. Now, when we look, uh, so he had to go through Samaria because Samaria needed the gospel. He saw Samaria And he saw his own life through the lens of God's grace. And such a perspective changes how we see other people. Where to the world, the woman's gender, her ethnicity, her religious background, all of those things posed enormous obstacles to the relationship. Remember we talked last week about, by logic, you look at this person and you go, this person is the furthest from the gospel. No, 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 no. The point of the gospel of John is Nicodemus and this woman are no further nor no closer than each other to the gospel. They both need the gospel of grace. So to the world, the woman was the furthest thing from what Jesus could reach. But Jesus, when he looks at her, he doesn't see that. He sees her desperate need of grace. So friends, how can the lens of God's grace reshape our perspective? I've got three things here. First, it causes us to see our neighbors more compassionately. It causes us to see our neighbors more compassionately. It causes us to look at them in light of their need for grace rather than their distance from it. And that's really hard to do because when you're talking to somebody who seems really hardened to the gospel, your instinctual response is to say, like, wow, that person is really far away from God. Like, and by that, you seem to think, or I seem to think oftentimes, and I don't know if the gospel can cross that distance. But when you look through the gospel lens and you realize, I was just as far from God. I was just as hard. I was just as impenetrable to the gospel. I was just as broken, but the gospel saved me The gospel can get them. It doesn't matter how far they are from it. Is God's arm too short? Is he not strong enough to break that heart? Now, friends, our confidence in the gospel should give us confidence for our lost friends. Secondly, it wards off bitter despondence. As Christians, we, we are tempted, I think, in these recent days to grow despondent to despair of the power of the kingdom of God. Because we look all around us and we see the darkness growing, as it were. And I don't deny that it seems as though our culture is changing. But when we look at it through the lens of the gospel, we can ward off that bitter despondence. We can see the world, not in terms of its hardness to the gospel, but in terms of how hungry it is for it. The disciples assumed here in this context that the gospel simply was not for the Samaritans. Remember? They looked at the Samaritans, they said they're political traitors. They're ethnically almost subhuman. They have the wrong bible, they have the wrong temple, they've been worshipping the wrong way for a really long time. If God were going to save anyone, it would not be them. And that's why the disciples are walking up to Jesus and they're like, dude, you should be hungry. And that's why Jesus has to say to them, you should be hungry. You should be hungry for the harvest of the gospel. Jesus calls us to think differently. Who is it that you look at in your life who would seem to be the furthest from the gospel? He'd say like, yeah, I mean, I'm sure... This person, maybe they could come, but not this one. Why have you concluded that? Have you concluded that because you think that person is so hard that God can't penetrate their soul? Because they're so sinful that God doesn't care for them, that he's written them off? Because they're so confused, they're so hard to talk to? What is it? Because what Jesus calls you to do is to put your trust and your confidence in God's power and not in that person's obstinates and hardness. Third element is that it urges us toward a life not just of consumption, but of godly and faithful obedience. We as Americans, were conditioned to be consumers. Our entire economy is built to make us consumers, and it's hard not to bring that into the church. It's hard not to make that a regular part of our life, that my job as a Christian is to be a Christian consumer. Not just materially, but spiritually. My job is to listen, 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 learn, 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 consume, consume, consume. But Christ calls us to godly exercise. It inclines us to begin to look for ways to change our attitude, to change our behavior, to trust more in God, and to better steward what God has given us of his grace to more ably work for his harvest. And these new priorities and this new perspective that begins to form in you as you begin to hunger more for Christ and less for food. Hunger more for Christ and less for riches and wealth. And hunger more for Christ and less for ease and comfort and the American dream. And you begin to look at the American dream and you say, you know, it's, it's not necessarily good or bad, but that's not what Christ has called me to. And You begin to look at the kingdom of heaven and say, that's what Christ has called me to. It changes your priority, it changes your perspective, and it creates a new attitude. Friend, this is what weans you off of the riches that the world offers you. You begin to look at it and you go, yeah, I know you want that thing, but I don't want that thing anymore. You begin to feel akin with Jesus, I have a food that you know nothing about. Something that is more substantial and more nourishing. So our third big point, this new priorities and new perspective create a new attitude. Grace gives us new joys. Grace gives us new joys. So in 35 he says, Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, see the fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. The purpose of this new perspective, of this new priority, of the new work that God sets us to, the point is joy. Did you catch that? So that the sower and the reaper, what? Work hard? <laughs> so the sower and the reaper rejoice together in the grace of God. The work of bringing the gospel to others is at least four things. It is collaborative. It is imperative. It is urgent. It is joyful. It is collaborative, imperative, urgent, and joyful. It's collaborative that means it often takes more than one person to bring in a soul and many of us have grown saddened discouraged despairing over our works of evangelism because deep down we think that only one person saves one other person and we think that it's us and we had we marked out this person like i put a big red x on their head like i'm going for that one you know And after, you know, seven years, you've been praying, you've been talking to them, and they're still not coming to Christ, you know, you get frustrated. And you begin to think, like, I failed. Friend, take a cue from this passage and understand that God uses many hands to do the work of the gospel. Your task is probably just one link in a long chain of links that eventually draws a person into the household of faith. There'll be other times where you walk up to someone and you present them with the gospel and they just like crack on the spot. They repent and they come to Christ. You're like, whoa, however I said it that time, I better do it again that way. Like, friend, I would caution you, the likelihood is that others have been laboring for a really long time. Others have been praying for a really long time. And in God's good providence, you were the final link on that chain. And that just at that moment when you said, Brother, I think you need the gospel. This is the gospel. And they crack and come to Christ. Friend, the work of the gospel is collaborative. Trust God to use other workers in the harvest. Sometimes you are the sower. Sometimes you are the reaper trust him to let others do it. In verse 30 it says I've sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Secondly, it's urgent. It's urgent. They're looking around going in at least potentially a spiritual sense like we got plenty of time. The Samaritans can come to Jesus another day, right? And Jesus' perspective is now is the time. Now is the time. Their days coming he will say, when no one can work. And while commentators argue all over the place as to what it means and why, You know, let's set that aside for the moment. The point is it's imperative. We need to work. If you linger over the opportunity to harvest, the winter weather will destroy the grain. I'm sure some of you know this much better than I do, but at the last church I was at, I had a friend from uh, Texas. He grew up in Wyoming. He was a wheat farmer, and he loved it so much that he continued to do it even well into his old age for other people. And he would always have to get up and just leave at at a random point just before the winter to get the winter wheat harvest. And his friends would tell him, like, when the time came because you had to book it and you had to get it because if you waited, you would lose your harvest. So the work's collaborative, takes lots of people. It's urgent. we got to be on the business we might feel sometimes as though we have all the time in the world, but the Bible instructs us to always be vigilant and vigorous in the work of the gospel, knowing that a time is coming when, quote, no one can work. And because of that, this work is imperative, meaning it's a command. He says in verse 38, I have sent you. I have apostolost you. And we recognize that word we're like apostle. I know what that is. Apostle is someone who's sent with a commission to get something done. And he says, I have sent you, I have commissioned you. This is your task, this is your work. This is not an optional duty for a Christian. While we acknowledge that some people receive as it were the gift of evangelism, and it seems like, man, they just know how to speak to lost people. Great, wonderful, God be praised. But that's not as though we can delegate, like, okay, so we'll let the people that are really good at it go do it. Every one of us is called to be a disciple maker. Now, for some of us, that means that we are disciple making in our own home because our children are our chief opportunity to evangelize for the cause of Christ. Some of us, that's the children that's in the household of God. For Some of us, that's, that's other relatives in your own household. Work from the inside and look out. But friend, all Christians are evangelists. It's not an optional duty. Anyone who has been truly changed by the grace of God has the opportunity, but the joyful and the glorious burden of showing God's grace to others chiefly to those that we live with and that we love, but then to those that we live among and seek to serve. And finally, friends, it's joyful work. So it's collaborative, it's urgent, it's imperative, but it's joyful. Those who have tasted of God's grace see this work as a labor of love. Jesus says in Luke that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents, who tastes grace, than over a hundred righteous who need no repentance. Ain't nothing get a party going in heaven like a sinner repenting. Ain't nothing get a party going like a sinner repenting. And friend, I know we have been conditioned. The world teaches you every day that to tell the gospel to someone else is the most offensive, worst, meanest thing that you can possibly do to them. But friend, To give someone the good news of Jesus Christ is the most joyful thing you can possibly do, and it's the best thing you could possibly tell them. It is the great news. It is the great news. Heaven shouts. Reapers rejoice when one sheaf is brought into God's barn. But that's not all, because grace transforms the work itself into a joyful task. When we think, what is the gospel, in a sense, metaphorically? It's like a herald of victory. You know, in the ancient days, you have a big fight out in the country somewhere. Everyone back at home is wondering, what should we expect next? And a herald is sent from that battle, and he runs all the way now, if he is carrying news of victory, do you think he drags his feet as he goes? Do you think he shows up in the town and is like, guys, I have some news. We won. You can all continue working. <laughs> right? And what does he do? He walks in and he says, we won. We won. We won. We won. And do they keep working? No, they rejoice. All right, let's have a party. Friends, when you bring the good news to someone, you are not bringing them the heavy news of defeat. You are bringing them the news that Jesus Christ lived the life that they should have lived and never could have. That God put Jesus to death in their place to pay for his eternal just wrath against them, to satisfy his own righteous wrath, and to give that person the complete, resplendent righteousness that only Jesus could give them, that pleases God, and not just for one day, not just for a year, not just for their lifetime, but for all of eternity, and that that has been purchased finally and fully at the cross of Jesus Christ, and that God raised him from the dead as a living proof that that is the truth, that Jesus is victorious over death, but Jesus is king. That's what you're telling them. You're telling them you can escape death. You can escape eternal condemnation. There is a home prepared in heaven for you. There are two basic reasons why evangelism doesn't feel like that. Because for most of us, I think evangelism does not feel like that, right? One. Sinners do not ordinarily want to hear or obey the gospel. Sinners don't want to hear that. That is not good news to them. And secondly, because we ourselves are often embarrassed by the gospel. Or another way to put it is, we're more afraid of people than we are of God. You, in this book, one of his major points in Evangelism is Exiles is that you can learn who you fear by who you try to please. If you are intent upon keeping the good pleasure of the people that you bring the gospel to, it will ultimately hamper the gospel. And this doesn't give us any grounds for being mean, nasty, rude, or bombastic about the way that we present the gospel. We don't, we don't sit there and be like, well, they're not going to like it anyway, so I may as well give it to them as hard as I can. Like, no, we're supposed to speak kindly, gently with our words seasoned with salt and wisdom as we go to them. However, don't measure the effectiveness of your evangelism on how that person responds. That's, that's simply not what evangelism is. Evangelism is not saying something and somebody else going, yes, that's wonderful. Evangelism is telling the good news. When you tell someone the good news about Jesus Christ, you evangelize them. It's done. It happened. Regardless of how they respond. Obviously, we want them to turn. Friends, we are not always received as heralds of victory. Paul says this and he describes, he says, we are the scent of life to the living and death to the dying. And he's referring to how when Roman conquerors would return victorious, they would go up to the temple with their spoil, the ever-strengthening scent of the temple incense being a promise to the victors of their honor and joy, but to the defeated, it meant slavery and death. It is a joyful thing to tell the news of God's grace, but not everybody hears it as good news. And that's why we do not simply rely entirely on society's goodwill in order to declare the truth of God's grace. We're going to tell it whether they like it or not because it's the good news of God's grace. We depend instead on God's grace within us and the urgency of his truth and the prompting of his Holy Spirit to direct us to proclaim his gospel. We rely on a spiritual hunger to do what God spiritually calls us to do and to be satisfied in the doing of it knowing that it's God who works within us to accomplish his good pleasure in us and in them. Ultimately, the joy of the harvester is not only in conversions for their own sake. What is the joy of the harvester really in? It's in the the Lord of the harvest. The sower and the harvester rejoice in God, the one who gathers in. The true worker rejoices to see God work and to be a part of his work. It's not the ease of harvesting that makes the harvester rejoice, but what it means. It means the end of the season is soon. It means the reward of the harvest feast is imminent. It means that the Lord of the harvest is bringing all his fruit into his storehouse. It means the kingdom of God is going to win and be established. So friends, those who work in the fields of God's grace rejoice to know that the glory of the harvest goes to the Lord of the harvest. And that's our next point. Servants of grace, glory in the power of God. Servants of grace, glory in the power of God. Compare this to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6. He says, I sowed, Apollos watered, but God gave the fruit. And that's not Paul being like, I sowed and Apollos watered and God got the fruit. He's not not sad that God gets the fruit. He's excited. He's relieved. He rejoices to see God get the glory for the labor. The joy comes from seeing others taste that eternally satisfying vintage that only Jesus can provide. It's like sharing your favorite symphony. It's like sharing your favorite book or favorite game with a friend and finding that they enjoy it just as much as you. There's delight in sharing a mutual joy. And that delight is compounded when it is the joy that every human being was made for. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely a nerd, and my whole life have been referred to as one, and so sometimes people will even leave the conversation and say, like, I'm just going to leave you, Gordon, you, you and this other person can just nerd out together. Friend, that's the kind of joy I'm talking about, honestly. Like, whatever it might be, whether it's that you are just going to get so excited about the game that you just saw or that you just played or the the thing that you just made, there's real joy in sharing it with someone who recognizes the value of what that is. And that's the joy of the household of faith. Part of why we gather of a Lord's Day is to nerd out together over the gospel of Jesus Christ because we love to see other people who love the gospel. It's just good. And this is two wonderful results in the work of a Christian's evangelism. You see, it makes us humble and it makes us courageous. When we know that every conversion is ultimately God's work, i.e. God gave the growth, when we see here, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor, others labored, and you have entered into the harvest, that lets us know that God's the one who gives the growth. And often the consummation of collaboration among many servants, when we see that we are just a small part of a much greater and more amazing miracle, we can rejoice knowing that God has chosen us just as an instrument in the symphony of his grace. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to play in a band or an orchestra or to be a part of a a team working to achieve a goal. There is real joy in doing your job in the midst of a larger organization that creates a product that you couldn't have created by yourself. It's just wonderful. It's a beautiful experience and it's a humbling experience, but it's also A courageous thing. You see, if you know that God's the one that brings the growth, if you know that God is the one who changes souls, if you know that God has commanded you to do this, that he's going to strengthen you to do this, that it's God's purpose and intent to save all those who are his, then we don't have to be like the lions of the Serengeti looking for the weakest gazelle to take down with evangelism. Like, you know, they're all running along, and the lines like, that one's way too fast. That one's way too strong. Can't get that. Oh, there's a straggler. Let's go get him. You know, like, Christians are not like that. We don't look at the, like, you oh, know, he's way too hard to the gospel. Oh, no, there's no way she'd have it. Now, that one, that one might. <laughs> Friend, we can rejoice and be courageous and boldly go and share the gospel with anyone. Because it's God who gives the growth. And we can go home when they don't answer the way that we wanted not despairing knowing it's in god's hands and that brings us to our last point people lead other people to god people lead other people to god we already saw this in chapter 1 where the disciples of christ find and bring other disciples of christ and here we see that yes in god's grace sometimes he draws one person powerfully to himself the woman But ordinarily, God delights for people to lead other people to find interest in Jesus. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And ultimately, though, they confirm their faith in verse 42, right? I said to the woman, it "Is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Friends, telling our testimony can be helpful, but telling our testimony is often not exactly the same as evangelism. We need to bring them to the gospel. It's great for them to know how God has worked in your life. That's, that's lovely. That's helpful sometimes. We need to tell them how God has worked in their life. We need to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ died on the cross to save sinners and bring them to God. Ordinarily, people bring other people to God. The woman couldn't convert the town, but she just had to tell them that she found the Savior of the world. She tells them and becomes the agent of God's grace to bring them to Jesus. And Jesus calls us to embrace that same magnanimous evangelical spirit to nourish a hunger to do God's will, to be the people who bring other people to see Jesus. So we see a basic pattern on which to build our own evangelism. One, we must first taste of God's grace ourselves. We have to first taste of God's grace ourselves. You got no business telling somebody else the gospel that you don't believe. So friend, come to trust in Jesus Christ as the first step to learning that hunger to do what God commands. You won't be able to do appropriately what God commands you to do unless you are supplied by God's grace. What God asks humans to do is impossible for humans apart from the animating and quickening spirit of God. You need the grace of God in order to proclaim the grace of God. But secondly, we must cultivate a hunger for faithful obedience by nourishing our souls with his word. We do need to consume God's word. We need to sit under good teaching. We need to be in the body of faith. We need to be in God's word regularly so that we will be gripped by its power and moved to obey it. Thirdly, we need to let our perspective be pruned by grace. Instead of looking around us and seeing enemies, we need to see the lost. Instead of seeing people full of themselves so much, we see them empty for Christ. Instead of threats, we can see opportunity. And instead of our own needs, we can see the needs of others. The call of Christ is not that Christ protected his own interests against us, his enemies, by remaining in heaven and forcefully putting a divide between us, right? What is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus Christ emptied himself of his privileges. He left his comforts. He left his heavenly abode. He went to his enemies. And he did what they could not do to bring them to himself. And that's the kind of love the church is supposed to be animated by. That's the evangelism that we want. We want our perspective pruned by grace and finally, we need to root our joy not in how people respond, but in God. In God's faithfulness and in God's goodness. As we obey Jesus, and as we speak of his grace, we should rejoice that he's given us this work, and we should delight as he delivers his people. And such joy redounds to more obedience and even greater delight. I will offer one brief admonition before I close. American evangelicalism should have a posture toward an increasingly hostile culture that is characterized not by admonition, but by evangelism. Admonition means to correct someone to do what they know to do. Admonition is appropriate within the household of faith. where we go to someone, we say, you know better than to gossip. Stop gossiping, repent, and be restored to the household of faith it is not appropriate to a world that does not know not to gossip. They do not know what they ought to do. What do they need? They need the gospel. They need evangelism. Admonition means to call someone who claims to follow Jesus back into obedience to his word. And all too often our perspective and our attitude towards those around us and toward the structures of power that are over us is one of admonition, as though we were to call them back to obedience. But the problem is, broadly speaking, they are not Christian. And Jesus calls his disciples to see the world around them as ignorant of the grace that they so desperately need. This passage doesn't say that we should not confront sin. This passage doesn't say we shouldn't call for repentance. It calls us to have a different attitude. It calls us to have a different tone. It calls us to imitate Jesus, to imitate his example, and to gently, kindly, with humility, but integrity, testify to the grace of God, alert the sinner to his need, and show him his Savior. I pray for myself, and I preach, as I hope you know, I preach to myself first amongst all. I pray that God would in his grace awaken in us a new spiritual hunger to do his will, to joyfully and earnestly pursue godly living as the best living and to give us new eyes to see the world in light of the gospel and a new joy rather than despair which prompts a glorious obedience, the faithful, the enduring proclamation of the gospel of God, Jesus Christ, slain for sinners, raised for their justification. Let us be just such a people. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty God, have mercy on the preaching of your word. Make us humble. Make us courageous. Let our eyes see what you see. Say what you say. And do what you do. Make us hungry to obey you. And strengthen us with what only the Spirit can provide. Make us willing and joyful agents of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth for Jesus sake Amen